Our text this morning is Ephesians 3, uh, 14 through 21. Pastor SJ just read that for us. And if we look at, if we look at this text in its context, where, where we're at in the flow of Ephesians, if you remember uh, from past weeks, we've talked about how Ephesians, like so many of Paul's letters, is divided in half. So the first half, chapters 1 through 3, focus on doctrine. They focus on letting the Ephesians know facts about their salvation. The first three chapters are an explanation of who we are in Christ. Right? They glory Christ and his work on the cross. They talk about how we have forgiveness as individuals, and they spend a lot of time talking about how we as Gentiles those who were previously far off from the people of God, are brought into the people of God, right? No longer are we Jew or Gentile. We are in Christ. That is our primary allegiance. That is who we are. We are a new humanity. We are a new temple being built up on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We are a new citizenship. We are All of our citizenship is in heaven. We're a new people gathered together. Next week, actually in two weeks, because we're going to have a guest missionary here next week, but next time we look at the book of Ephesians, we're going to start chapter 4, which starts in the, the second half of that letter. Right? So the first half is, is the facts that we know. The second half is how that changes our life. So if everything in the first half is true, which it is, what does that mean for us? And so this, this message this morning, this passage of scripture this morning, is kind of right in the middle. Paul prays. There's a couple different prayers throughout this letter. This is one of them. He prays to sort of conclude the first section of the book and to transition us into the second section of the book. He opens this passage in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And if you, have a, if you have a paper Bible open, if you have a Bible open at all, if you look back up at verse number 1 of chapter 3, you see that this is really a continuation of Paul's thought from verse number 1. Ephesians 3, 1 says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of the Gentiles. And then Paul kind of gets distracted, as, as he does sometimes, and he kind of goes into a tangent. And in verse number 14, he comes back to the thought that he originally was thinking. He opens the chapter, for this reason, I, Paul. And in verse 14, he comes back to this, and he says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul prayed for his people, this church that was underneath his care. He prayed for them. He prayed for their well-being. He gets down on his knees, whether that was literally or figuratively, but you can imagine Paul on his knees, arms lifted to heaven, praying for the people, for the church that God has entrusted to him. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. If you have your NIV Bible open, as the the pew Bibles are, depending on the version, you might see a note Uh, in the bottom of your Bible. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Uh, But you might see a note that talks about how the word for family and the word for father are related. The word for father is pater. The word for family is patria. So from whom, you know, there's the father, from whom every fatherhood on earth is named, if you will. 
And Paul here, he's talking about all of the, or these different families, Jews and Gentiles, who have been united into one family. We are now named as a family from the Father. And he's praying for this united people of God. For this reason, I pray for this family who gets its name from the Father. And he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, if I were Paul's English teacher, and I were grading this little section of, of his, you know, if this was an assignment that he turned in, I would probably give Paul kind of a bad grade here. Because it's a run-on sentence, Paul's kind of all over the place. He says there's this thing, which leads into this thing, which leads into this thing. And it kind of makes kind of makes preaching this, to be honest, a little bit, a little bit hard. He talks about um, being strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being. And then he explains that in the next sentence. And in the next sentence, he explains the previous sentence. Verse number 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what does it mean to be strengthened with power uh, through his spirit in our inner being? Well, it means that, verse number 17, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Second half of the verse, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Paul prays for these people to be strengthened. And what that strengthening looks like is to know and experience the love of God for them in their lives. Paul prays something really interesting and really unique here in verse number 19. He says, To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love that surpasses knowledge. That word surpasses, if... If you've been you know, attending uh, every Sunday morning, if you've been hearing me preach through this book, maybe if you've been reading Ephesians on your own every week, as I've encouraged you to do, that word shows up a couple other times in the book of Ephesians. We've already seen it twice. Can you guess where? Can you remember where? So the word's not surpasses in this translation. But it shows up at the end of chapter 1 when we talk about the immeasurable power of God. Remember that? Talking about the power that has raised Christ from the dead. The immeasurable, unknowable power that it takes to raise a human being from the dead. Not just resuscitate or revive someone like Lazarus was who later died. But to actually bring a human being back from the dead and give him a glorified body so that he lives forever. Immeasurable power. At the beginning of chapter 2, we saw the immeasurable kindness of God in Christ Jesus. A kindness and a compassion for a people who are lost in their sins, who are destined for hell, who need the grace of God in their lives. And because of the immeasurable kindness of God, he reaches out to us in forgiveness. And here we see once again the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's the same thing here. This love that doesn't fit our categories. This love that goes above and beyond what we can even comprehend, what we can even imagine. The word there for, if anyone is a language nerd in here, the Greek word uh, underneath that word surpasses, underneath those word immeasurable. Uh, you've heard of the English word hyperbole, right? 
So hyperbole, it's, it's an exaggeration, but not with the intent of lying to someone. Right? If I said that it's a hurricane outside, none of you actually would think that it's a hurricane outside, right? You're not led to believe that suddenly we're on the coast who are getting, you know, and we're getting pelted by a hurricane. You know instinctively that I'm just talking about the fact that it's really, really windy outside. It's hyperbole. It's exaggeration. It's going above and beyond. It comes from the Greek word hyper, which means above and beyond. This is what that word is the surpassing love of Christ, the love that goes beyond all knowledge. What is a love that goes beyond knowledge? What does that look like? We can think of loves that, you know, we can comprehend. Love for one's neighbor. If you're, imagine you're in a, you know, lying at a grocery store, you're, you're standing behind a a new mother, right? She's holding a newborn in her arms. She's got like a two-year-old wrapped around her ankles, She's just kind of frazzled, you know, half of you have been there, the rest kind of understand what's going on, but she forgot her wallet at home. Just imagine this, and you're standing behind her in line. She doesn't have her wallet. You may, as a decent human being who is filled with compassion for this woman, you may say, hey, you know what, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it, I'm just going to, I'm going to pay your share, right, I'm going to, I'm going to pay for your groceries just this time, it's not a big deal, you know, I'm just trying to love my neighbor as myself. You know, just, just go home and when the opportunity comes to you, right, pay it forward, right? That, that's a love that we can comprehend. But there's a limit to that love, right? If her bill was, say, $200 instead of $30, right, depending on how generous you are, depending on how much money you have in your bank account, you may rethink that. I know I would. Be like, oh, $200, that's... I'm sorry for you that you forgot your wallet and go and, you know, be blessed as you go home and get it so you can pay for these groceries, right? Right, that's a love that we comprehend, but there's a limit to it, a limit to how much we love someone. You know, we just had Valentine's Day. And this, this country, you know, I'm sure around the world, there were young men vying for the attention and the affections of young women, right? And you can imagine a young man going out and getting flowers for this girl he's trying to impress, Maybe he gets chocolates, maybe he gets a teddy bear, maybe he takes her out to a nice dinner, right? He does these things because he legitimately cares about her. But if she doesn't care about him back, right, maybe she goes out for dinner because it's a free dinner, but, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't really reciprocate at all. The conversation's cold and awkward. She doesn't get him anything. He's going to stop showering her with affection, right? It's love that has limits. You expect some reciprocity there. And if, and if she doesn't respond in kind, then you're going to stop. These are loves that we can comprehend. We think of loves that are maybe don't have limits, right? Uncommon loves. We understand the love that a soldier may have for his comrades in arms. We understand, even if we haven't necessarily experienced perhaps, the love that it would take for a man in uniform to throw himself over a grenade in a trench, facing certain death to save the lives of those that he cares about. That's selfless love, self-sacrificing love. And that's, that's an order of magnitude above those other loves that we've talked about, right? No one makes a movie about paying for someone else's groceries in line. That kind of love doesn't stir us. It doesn't invite us to action. But how many movies have we watched based on the self-sacrifice of someone? 
There's something about that that calls to the human heart. There's something about that that stirs us up. I think of a story that I read. I'm going I'm to read to you uh, an excerpt from it about the nuclear power plant uh, in the 1980s, Chernobyl, uh, in Eastern Europe, that melted down, and three men who averted disaster. On the morning of April 26, 1986, scientists got to work on a new series of tests in Unit 4 of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in northern Ukraine. Soon after the test began, things started going very, very wrong. Two explosions rocked the unit. Two unfortunate engineers were killed instantly, but that was just the start of the problem. More seriously, a fire had started in the light water graphite moderator reactor. I don't know what that is. Plumes of radioactive smoke were sent into the sky. A further 49 workers quickly fell ill and died over the next few weeks, often enduring slow, agonizing deaths from radiation poisoning. The accident meant that more radioactive fallout was sent into the atmosphere than was caused by either of the nuclear bombs dropped on Japan at the end of the Second World War. The damage was massive, but it could have been so much worse. A second explosion could have caused the whole Chernobyl complex to go into full meltdown. Had this happened, experts estimate that nuclear fallout would have spread over half of Western Europe, killing untold numbers as well as destroying land and food crops. Tensions between the Western world and the Soviet Union might have also deteriorated significantly. Thankfully, the second explosion was avoided thanks to the three men who have gone down in history as the Chernobyl Three, or the Chernobyl Suicide Squad. The story goes that several weeks after the first explosion, the plant chiefs became seriously worried that radioactive material was traveling in a molten flow towards the huge pool of water underneath the reactor. If the two came into contact, it would have caused a second steam explosion, potentially destroying Chernobyl's three other reactors. Someone needed to go into the pool and drain it. According to most accounts, two plant workers and one soldier stepped forward to take on the job. Undoubtedly, the plant workers, and most likely the soldier too, would have known that the basement of the reactor was highly radioactive. Even if they could get the job done, they would still be exposed to lethally high doses. In short, it was a true suicide mission. And the Soviet authorities even assured the men that their families would be looked after financially. Accounts from that time are a little bit hazy just because of um, you know, the, the Soviet kind of cover that was over news reports from that era and that time. So, so there's differing reports on what happened to those men. Some reports say that they survived. Some reports say that you know, maybe they died. But regardless, risking certain death to save the lives of millions is incredible love. It's incredible self-sacrifice. It's the sort of thing that movies are made of. It's the sort of story that we love to hear, that we love to allow our emotions and our passions to be excited. But is that really a love that surpasses all knowledge? Is that a love that surpasses all understanding? I would submit to you that it's not. I couldn't find a story that would represent this kind of love outside of the scriptures, so I kind of made one up. 
On September 11, 2001, we experienced one of, one of the most significant terror attacks in U.S. history. Hijackers, you know, took over four different planes. They destroyed the two towers of the World Trade Center. They crashed a plane into the Pentagon. They also hijacked a plane that, was, uh, that crashed over in a field in Pennsylvania. 3,000 people died on that day. The man behind it was a man who has entered infamy, Osama bin Laden. He wasn't a direct perpetrator of the attacks, but he was, the, he was one of the, the funders of it, one of, the, um, one of the people who planned it. It was his operation. And for years after these attacks, the U.S. military tried to track him down. For years, he was public enemy number one. He was the guy. If we think about someone who is evil, someone who we are completely opposed to, you really can't get any worse in our lifetimes than Osama bin Laden. Now, the truth is that he was killed in a raid on his compound uh, back during the Obama administration, 2012, I think it was. But imagine with me for a moment that he wasn't killed in that raid, that he was captured, that he was brought back to the United States to stand trial, where he was found guilty on thousands of counts of first-degree murder, on terrorism charges, plots against the United States, and he has handed down a hefty sentence. Imagine with me, this may be a little bit uncomfortable, but imagine that he is sentenced to torture and death. Right? Normally, we don't allow that sort of thing. But if we look historically, that's something that would be you know, within the realm of possibility. Just because his crimes were so heinous, a judge throws out the Eighth Amendment. He says, you know what? This man deserves far more than just death. We're going to torture him. We're going to kill him. He is going to truly face justice for what he has done. If that makes you uncomfortable, I hope it does. I don't think we as Christians should be okay with that. But imagine with me again that there is a firefighter. Let's call him, let's call him Tom. Firefighter named Tom. And this firefighter, by all accounts, is a hero. He served on 9-11. He was up in one of the towers as it collapsed. Excuse me, not as, not, as he, not as it collapsed. He had friends who were in the tower as it collapsed. He made it out just in time. He lost friends. He lost family members. He lost co-workers that were closer than brothers to him. He was a man who suffered greatly because of the actions of Osama bin Laden. Imagine with me That Jim, excuse me, Tom, sorry, that Tom goes to the judge who sentenced Osama bin Laden to this. He goes to him and says, you know what, I want to take Osama bin Laden's punishment. I want to endure that torture. I want to suffer the death on his behalf. If that happened, Tom would be laughed out of the courtroom. We would question whether he's mentally sane. Right, because who does that? Who goes and gives their life for their enemy? Who, how, how does that even work? We don't have the mental capacity to understand that. That is a love that surpasses knowledge. That a man would give his life not for his friends, not for a family member, not untold millions of innocent people, but to give his life for an enemy, to give his life for someone who had done him great harm, who'd been responsible for the death of his friends and co-workers. That is what Christ has done for us.
Romans 5 puts it this way. Verse number 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And the word righteous there means someone who gives to everyone their due. They're not necessarily a generous person. They're not necessarily stingy. They just give out exactly what is required of them. For that kind of person, someone's probably not going to die, right? Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse number 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If we want to think about a love that is unknowable, a love that surpasses knowledge, we think of the love that Christ had for us. Christ did not love us because we had something to offer him. Christ did not save us because we were, you know, somehow worth redeeming. Christ died for us because of his love while we were his enemies. While we rebelled against him, while we were still in our sins, while we still treasured the things that gave him grief, Christ died for us. This is truly a love that is unknowable, that a man will die for his enemies. Paul talks in verse number 18, to know the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. When we try to measure this love, Right, you picture it as an object. You get out, get out your ruler or yardstick. You know, you try to get out some fancy construction measuring thing that I don't know what they exist to try to to try to measure how big this thing is exactly, and you can't do it. It is so large. It is unknowable. It is a love that surpasses all knowledge. It's a love that we don't have the capacity to understand. Paul prays that they would know. This love, this love that is unknowable, this love that surpasses knowledge. Paul prays, I pray that you may know the love of Christ. How do you know a love that is unknowable? What does that look like? We've talked in past weeks about the difference between head knowledge, right, and heart knowledge. The difference between knowing a fact and having that fact really settle into you, to settle into the core of your being, to really change your heart, to really change your life. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about just knowing a fact. He's not asking the people just to recount, uh, recount exactly how much God has loved us. He's asking them or praying for them that this love would change their lives. And if you are in Christ, if you have experienced this great love, if you have experienced this forgiveness, if you have experienced this redemption, you can know that love. But Paul prays for this to really hit bottom, for them to truly grasp it. And when we truly grasp the love of God, even though we might not be able to you know, recount all the theological aspects of it, you know, every dimension of it, we might not be able to tell someone about that. But Paul prays that we know it, that it transforms our life, our lives. He prays that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This fullness, 
the fullness of God's love, he prays that we know that, that we are filled with that. Right? As we are a people, you know, we are Gentiles who have been brought near. We are in this room, a hodgepodge of people with different likes, different dislikes, different sports teams that we cheer for. But we are united in Christ. And as, as all, of, all of these different ethnicities, all of these different you know, political preferences and all of these other things, as we are united as different people into one body of Christ, Paul prays that the love that God has for us is the love that we show one another. Not love because everyone around us is similar to us. Right, Not love because it's easy to relate to the person down the pew, but a love because the thing that unites us is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. We have something that's far closer than any other allegiance. So Paul prays that this love that God has for us, this love that brings us to God, is the love that characterizes our relationships with each other. An unknowable love that we know it, that we become people of this unknowable love. And as we go on in the coming weeks, as we, as we go through the second half of Ephesians, we're going to see some very practical ways that we can love each other. But for now, remember the love that God has had for you. It is not a love that a man has for a friend, but the love that a man has for his enemy. God loved you while you were unlovable. So let us love those around us, even though they may seem unlovable, because they are loved by Christ. Will you pray with me?